The sound of the child's name coming out of this man's mouth made Paula shiver. He pronounced Brody and my boy with serrated edges, possessive, controlling. Was she imagining it? She might be. She might be. Even so, right now, she would do anything. She would rip his tongue out of his revolting wet mouth, anything to stop him saying the boy's name again. Paula pushed herself to regulate her breathing and fixed her eyes on the computer screen, but she kept seeing Brody's anxious little face, checking his mother was okay. Then she saw Cameron fretting, scanning the house for danger signs, keeping close to Stacy. Paula heard her own voice coming out on autopilot, her benignly firm doctor voice. The thing is, Mr Ferguson, cardiac health is not something to ignore. I'm not going to have a heart attack this week, though, am I? What a relief it would be for Rochelle, for Brody, for anyone else in this man's orbit if a sudden heart attack took him out. Since you're here, said Paul, we should take your blood pressure and talk about a few other tests. Righto, you don't have to ear bash me about it. Paul put on the blood pressure cuff, pumped it up, read the gauge, using the familiar steps of the task as a way to settle herself. 186 over 120, that's worryingly high, she said. If it's high, that's because you got me riled up about all this, snorted Ferguson. That's from you putting stress on me. For this man, every setback, every irritation would always be someone else's fault. Paula turned back to the computer monitor. I see that Dr Lang prescribed some medication for hypertension a while ago. Yeah, I stopped taking it. Gave me headaches. Paula should allow this man to walk out of the consulting room and pray he had an almighty heart attack or stroke, thereby releasing his wife and child from fear and violence. Mr Ferguson, you can ignore my advice, it's up to you, but I think you should follow up on some of these appointments. Is there a reason you never got the blood test Dr Lang ordered? Oh, he gave me one of those, you know. He flapped his hand at the sheaf of test forms on the desk. I hate those pathology joints. Too much waiting. I'm busy. Well, why don't I just take some blood right now? Paula usually sent patients off to one of the private pathology places to have blood drawn. But sometimes she did the simple stuff herself in the consulting room, on the spot. With certain patients, reluctant or unreliable ones, it was the safest way to ensure proper follow-up. As she suggested the solution to Ferguson, Paula was observing herself, hearing herself be the responsible doctor again. Her habits of mind were so strong, feeling the obligation to offer good care even to this vile man. It would only take a few minutes and then it's done, she added. She saw him wince. I'm not big on needles. A needle phobia? Paula felt a surge of vengeful anticipation. It would be satisfying to see this man squirm for a moment. Ah, right. Well, I find that when a patient is scared of needles, it helps if I'm not scared, he shot back. Just not a fan. I mean, who in their right mind likes getting stuck with needles? Paula pressed her lips together in a forgery of a sympathetic smile. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.
Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. My guest today is Deborah Oswald. Deborah began writing plays as a teenager and has since produced a string of plays and scripts for television. She was the recipient of two New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards for the play Stories in the Dark and for her script for the TV series Offspring, for which she also received the 2014 Best Screenplay from the Australian Academy of Cinema and Television Arts. Her publications extend to nearly a dozen children's books, and Deborah has most recently ventured into the realm of adult fiction with Useful and then The Whole Bright Year. Today I'm talking to Deborah about her new book, The Family Doctor. Deborah, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. I've got to say, you paint quite a brutal picture of domestic violence and abuse, and you don't mess around with murder either. There's actually four bodies within the first six pages. So it's pretty confrontational. Does the theme of domestic violence raise that need to be confrontational in you? Maybe that's right. I mean, I never thought I would be the kind of person who would write about murder. I mean, I've written, I've killed people many times in things I've written, but I've never, I've never written about murder before. And and I think it had to be that intense because the the crisis is is that urgent, and it grew out of the the, the desperation that I feel when I'm reading yet another story about a woman and children who've been killed. So that that sort of anxiety and rage and anguish that I felt required a story that, that would be as intense as that. Deborah, as a playwright, a scriptwriter and author, much of your work centres on personal dramas with themes of love, loyalty, responsibility, inner conflict, and I guess the challenges that everyday people face. The Family Doctor, though, takes us into this very disturbing world of domestic violence, but it's also a brilliantly intense thriller. What what makes a thriller in this context? Well, I am not particularly interested in writing the kind of thrillers that are puzzles, you know, a mystery to be solved. But I think something can be a thriller if you care about the characters and then I put those characters in jeopardy either physical jeopardy or facing moral dilemmas. So as a reader, you are drawn to keep reading because you want to know what happens next to those people that you care about. It's that kind of forward momentum kind of thriller as opposed to the solving of a puzzle kind of thriller. In an article in Good Reading, you you actually referred to this technique that you use. It uses filing cards, not unlike storyboarding in a movie, and you say you write each beat of the novel or the plot on a card and lay them out on a table. What do you mean by beat and how does that express itself through the story? So a beat will sometimes be a little bit of plot. You know, for example, um, Anita goes to the coroner's office or it might be a moment when one character says something crucial to another character. So it might be um, Anita confronts Paula about X piece of information. So you, I'll lay them all out in the order that I think they're going to happen in, then question that. I'll interrogate that when I see it in front of me and think, well, have I in fact got these in the right order? Is it more interesting if we delay the reveal of that information or would it, would it be more interesting if that happens before that? So it's, it's a way to manipulate the plot and the storytelling without getting bogged down in the, in the, in the verbiage of the actual text because it's easy to sort of feel right and to end up on rails where you think because you put something in a certain order it has to be that way, when in fact if you think, hang on a minute, if I flip those two things, that's much more interesting. 
If we could talk about Paula and Anita, two of the really central characters in The Family Doctor, there's a relationship between them that's explored right through the book, the inner conflicts they have and their attempts to sort of reconcile those. Uh, there's also this really uncomfortable dissonance between the moral and the ethical and the rule of law and the process that that entails. You obviously want readers to really feel that dissonance. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the book is not advocating for murder or for the extreme things that some of my characters do. The th- what a thriller gives you is the permission to play what if somebody crossed the line in, in the way that, say, Paula crosses the line. And from a sort of moral and ethical point of view, I wanted to do that as the best way I could think of to express the desperation that so many women feel, that faced with this crisis, a person in a particular situation might be desperate enough that they would cross the line and do something that most of us would consider to be wrong, even if in the moment that she's doing it, we find it darkly satisfying. Um, But I also wanted those characters to be faced with big moral dilemmas often, you know, should I do this? Should I tell my friend? Should I dob on my friend? Um, should I give this person a certain piece of information that they might use to do something bad? Um, and I want the reader to feel that question buzz inside themselves. You know, what would I do in that situation? Um, would I would I dob my friend in, in that situation? You seem to create this tension not just on that level, but on another level, which is this powerlessness that uh, it it creates around the victims. But in The Family Doctor, there's this move from powerlessness to control or to regaining power over the circumstances. But this comes with quite a few consequences, doesn't it? Yeah, so so when I first thought about trying to write about this, this, this topic, I didn't feel that I could write from the point of view of a victim because I'm not one. So I wrote from the point of view of most of us, which is anguished observers. As a doctor, Paula um, is not a victim of domestic violence herself, but people close to her, her her best friend and then patients who walk into her surgery, are in in danger and she can see it. And she feels powerless to help them. I mean, she can help them in some ways, but she feels powerless to help women who are in really desperate situations. Until the thought enters her mind, I could actually do something. I actually have the opportunity and the skills to do something to help this powerless person. So so the point of view of the book, both Paula and Anita, is not of a victim. It's the point of view of a person who desperately wants to protect women and children who are trapped in powerless situations. There's a, there's a fantasy that, that, that Paula has early on where she imagines picking up a scalpel and just slicing through the carotid artery of the man who just killed her best friend and two children. I think a lot of readers will feel, yeah, that's pretty satisfying. I mean, it's a fantasy. I'm not advocating that we go around slicing people's carotid arteries open. But the idea that you could seize control even in an imaginative way is the only way I could express how desperate a lot of us feel. Having said that, I'm not endorsing what Paula does and arguably the book is a tragedy. You know, her life falls apart. She knows what she's done is wrong. She becomes in some ways a shell of a person because of what she's done. So hopefully people will understand why she does it 
and at least for a moment feel the little surge of what would it be like to feel the control of stopping somebody from hurting somebody. There's actually more than one thread running through this book too. You, you've got a parallel, which is this trial, the Santino trial. What's the role of the Santino trial in the narrative and, and why introduce this layer of complexity? The second kind of main character in the book is a woman called Anita who's a journalist who covers the, the courts. And she's in some ways us in the book. You know, she's, for me, she's me. She's my point of view in the book. She's a woman who's incredibly angry about what's happening but and is frustrated that the system doesn't seem to work to protect people but she believes in the system. But as a court journalist, she's week after week watching yet another trial of a woman who's been murdered when it's too late, the woman's already been murdered. And at a certain point in the book that is crucial in the, in the kind of moral journey that she and Paula are on, she's covering the trial of a man who has killed his girlfriend after years of being in a, a coercive, controlling relationship. But he is claiming that it was a suicide and, well, I won't say what happens because I don't want to spoil the story, but it's a way for me to spread it out from just the particular victim at the beginning of the book and the ways that cases fit the pattern that is so common, repeated again and again and again, and about all the other people who care about her and about all the ways the system can sometimes conspire to obstruct the process and make and, and justice not be done. Um, I like the idea of a trial being a way to honour a person who's been killed and there are quite a few characters in the book who appear in the trial who care about this woman. And it's also a way to push the temptation in front of Paula to commit another murder. But, again, I won't explain how because I don't want to spoil the story. No, let's keep it to ourselves. I was talking to Michael Brissenden a few uh, weeks ago about his new book, Dead Letters, which looks at the nexus between crime and politics or corruption and politics, if you like. And he was sort of suggesting that crime fiction or fiction can actually have a role in exploring these issues because fiction can go to places where nonfiction or journalism can't. Do you think fiction has a role to play in breaking open an issue like domestic violence? And if so, what are its limitations? Well, I really think it is a great way to talk about difficult stuff because I'm, I've always been very wary of writing drama based on real stories because you're really hamstrung. I mean, there's, there's the legal risk of defamation, but there's also the risk that you might inadvertently wound a person that you wouldn't, wouldn't wish to wound. So whereas when you write fiction, you can go for it and it's possible to tell a certain kind of truth because you uh, are hidebound by the details and facts of an actual story. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's a possibility to be eloquent about the truth of something in a different way. And what fiction also allows you to do is let a reader imaginatively enter the experience and feel it in a visceral way, in an emotional way. I mean, I think really good narrative nonfiction can do that too, but with fiction you have the emotional experience for the reader and you're also free to find the best way to tell the story and explore an idea without being restricted by legal stuff. And I guess uh, speaking up, which I suppose is what you're doing, is very much in the headlines at, at this time, at this moment in time. Are you speaking up or encouraging people to speak up about this or other forms of abuse through fiction? 
Oh, that's a really interesting question. I don't, I'm not speaking up as a, as a victim because I'm not one. And I suppose, I suppose I'm speaking up, but I don't think I need to encourage people to speak up. My women friends and I talk about this all the time. So what this book is, is a cry of rage. I'm not speaking, I'm yelling. That's giving the wrong impression because it's actually quite a nuanced book, I think. Like it's really important to me that, that alongside the dark things that happen in the book, that there's a lot of attention given to the beauty of friendship between women and the glory of little children and there's a love story in the book because it's really important to me that the world of it include respectful, loving, tender, wonderfully sexy relationships between men and women because that's the precious thing that we want to keep. We're trying to protect these things. So it's important that, that the book remind us of the precious things that we need to protect. Deborah, it's a really fascinating book and really is a book for its time. Thanks for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking to Deborah Oswald about her new book, The Family Doctor. It's published by Alan and Unwin and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. You've been listening to the Good Reading Magazine Podcast and my name's Greg Dobbs.